Thanks, Greg. Team, good morning, everyone. Well, it's good to be with you all again. Last week, I had a chance to speak to hundreds of uh, men and women involved in the legal profession. I was speaking at the Christian Legal Society National Conference in Newport Beach. And while opportunities are like that are great to build up the larger body of Christ, I'm glad to be back with, with my people this morning. Uh, I just want to encourage you guys, uh, men's conference, as you saw the video, is coming up really soon. There are some spots available, and I just want to encourage you, if you haven't already signed up, make sure you do sign up. Even if you can't be there for the whole weekend. I've got a couple things for my daughter. She's a, in a production, so I'll be out at, at her production, but every chance I get, I will be at the conference. You know, I don't need to tell you the crazy things that are going on in our society. And, and if you want to know how to deal with the horizontal aspects first, and you can be like a dog chasing its tail just with all that's going on, you really got to get the vertical dimension straight. And, and at these kind of conferences, the fellowship, the teaching of God's word, it is rich and important. So ladies, I know it can be a sacrifice, especially if you've got young kids. Uh, do whatever it takes. Make that sacrifice. Maybe partner with other ladies to watch your kids. Set your husbands free to be a part of that weekend event. Trust me, the return is going to be there on that investment. Uh, young ladies of the church, you know, um, if, you know, encourage the young guys of our church to go to that conference. You know, if they want to stand a chance in dating you, let them know they got to be at the men's conference, right? <laughs> and if they're going to pursue you, they better be pursuing righteousness first. Just like that clear and make sure at the men's conference. So we still got time to sign up. I encourage you guys to do that. Uh, if you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 7, and if you need to use one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find that on page 887. Today we're going to finish the rest of, the, of Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. Romans 7, starting at verse 7 and all the way through the end of the chapter, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Paul writes this, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I, once, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at the three questions that Paul asks in this text. I don't know if you saw them there. Each of those questions, it makes it very clear. You may have heard the phrase, by no means, Paul asks three questions. One, in verse 7, is the law sin? The second question, in verse 13, does the law cause death? And then finally, who will deliver me? Verse 24. Now, these three questions are just going to make the, the outline of my sermon. It's very helpful when Paul makes it easy on me this way. The question we have to ask is, why does Paul ask these three questions? Now, by way of reminder, um, when Paul delivered the, the gospel exposition starting in chapter 3, verse 21, and he really takes it all the way up to chapter 5, verse 21, so about those two chapters, Paul is anticipating that there's going to be objections to this amazing gospel because it's quite frankly too good to be true. And so we've been dealing with those objections for the last couple of weeks. So the first objection was in chapter 6, verse 1. It goes something like this. Because God loves to forgive, shouldn't we continue to live in sin so God can exercise his amazing grace? You remember that? And, and Paul says, absolutely no. You're no longer slaves to sin. Why would you want to continue in sin? Right? And then the second object, objection came in. You looked at that last week in chapter uh, 6, verse 15. It went like this. If we're no longer slaves, then we're free to live however we want. And again, Paul says, no, by no means. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you are a slave to righteousness. You may not be married to the law, but now you're married to Christ. Remember, and I love the way uh, Jesus quoted the prophet Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody, right? So that was objection one, that was objection two, and then this morning we find objection number three. Well, then here it is, then, then the law itself must be the problem then. And again, Paul says, no, may it not ever be. It is sin that is the problem. The law just made it very clear. And that battle against sin, even though the victory is guaranteed, rages to this day. And so those are the objections that Paul has been dealing with. And so it brings us to this section of Scripture now where Paul is actually asking another three questions based on that. So let's look at them one at a time. So he gets to, really, this is objection three, but it's our first question of the morning. Is the law sin? You see that in verse seven. And, and Paul makes it very clear categorically in verse 12. No. In fact, the law is holy, righteous, and good. But you, you can understand why the people are confused because Paul just got through saying in chapter 7, verse 5, a couple of verses earlier, that Paul says that the law arouses our sinful passions, right? And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul does say that the power of sin is the law. So what is going on here? If, if the law is righteous and holy and good, but Paul says it arouses sinful passions and says that the power of sin is bound into the law, then how does all this work? So we need to be very clear. Let me kind of tease out the tension here. What Paul does say is that the law does a couple things. The law defines sin for us, right? And we see that in our passage. But the, also the law reveals sin in us. So the, the law defines sin for us, but it also reveals sin in us. But unfortunately, what the law cannot do is save us. To understand this, we need to talk a little bit, think more broadly about the law of God. What do we mean by the law? So when I was a kid, 
uh, growing up in the islands of Hawaii, I would often hike the Diamond Head Trail. It was a wonderful thing. This was back in the 70s and 80s. Today, it's a much more family-friendly hike. As a matter of fact, Lori and I took our kids on it a few times when we visited back home. Now, going up from the bottom into the crater all the way to the top where we wanted to go visit the, basically the, during World War II, the military had been to, built a bunch of bunkers into the mountainside just in case we got attacked again. We'd have a, a tactical place to defend the island. And so now it's just a great place to go hiking. And, and so what they had was they had this handrail to help you ascend to the top of the crater and particularly into the embankment or the, the, the bunker where they had hundreds of stairs at a very steep angle because military guys like steep angles for some reason. And so they had this handrail. Now to be clear, the handrail actually didn't give you much help. Uh, you had the strength, you needed the strength to pull yourself up, but it was there if you needed assistance. It was there as a kind of a guide for you, and here it is now. Obviously, you can see they've made it much nicer than it was. When I was growing up, it was just this right-hand side or left-hand side, and there was nothing else, and it was basically a wooden handrail. And so now they have this nice handrail, and once you get into the, the concrete bunker itself, there was, this was in the 70s, right, back in the, the decade where we got to do fun things and now they got rid of all that stuff. You had to climb up a ladder 25 feet, and then at the top of the ladder, the ladder would then go horizontal another 15 or 20 feet over the chasm that you just came back up. And so you'd have to kind of get up and then climb back over the ladder, and yet, except they had guardrails to protect you from falling off and hitting the concrete floor. Once you got, came across that, you came into the pillbox itself. And in the pillbox, I don't know why, but they had this large mirror. So I guess you could say what a hot mess you were, because everyone's sweaty and hot. And you would look at yourself in the mirror, but right next to the mirror, you could see the window. And the view from the window was absolutely phenomenal. Now, what does this have to do with the law of God? Let me explain it to you. The law functions kind of like that handrail. It is a guide to righteousness, but not more than that. It kind of tells you how to get to or where you need to go, but it doesn't actually help you get there. You need your own strength to climb the hill. The law is a guardrail like on that ladder. It's to prevent a disaster from happening. It acts as a restraint in our society, tells us what is evil and what to avoid, but it can easily be climbed over, I mean, to your own peril, but you can do that. The law acts as a mirror. We look at it and we see what a hot mess we are. That we are just a mess, sweaty, not worthy of these things. But the law also acts as a window to see the beauty of the glory of God. Now, this is historically how Christians have thought and understood what the law does. It's not just one thing. It's multiple things. But because the law was given to sinners, it cannot save us. It can only point out what is righteous and hope that it can restrain our foolishness and make us see our need for a Savior because it cannot save us. So God's law shows us God's glory and our failure specifically against that glory in specific detail. Notice what Paul says in verse 7. If it had not been for the law... I would not have known what sin is. So the law defines sin for us. Now you might be thinking, wait, wait, this is silly. I don't need God's law to tell me what's wrong. We, we know it's wrong to lie, to cheat, to steal, to hurt other people. But notice, Paul doesn't mention any behavioral actions, does he? He talks about an attitude, covetousness. 
Now, I'll get back to that in a minute because it really is significant, but, but I want to continue to make my main point here. The law defines sin for us, but it also reveals sin in us. Notice in verse, in eight, verse eight and nine, Paul says basically, the more God's law told me that covetousness is a sin, the more he found that he was a covetous person. As a matter of fact, if you look at the end of verse 9, it seems like sin sprung to life because of God's law. Paul says sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced all kinds of covetousness in his heart, verse 8. Now, what is Paul saying? And what does that reveal about you and I? I think what Paul is mentioning here is that there is a certain perverseness that God's law reveals about the sin that's inside of us. We like to sin. We, we just enjoy the very act of it. And sometimes, if we're going to be honest, the more we know something is wrong, the more we delight in doing that very thing. Let me give you a couple of illustrations, and maybe the point will resonate with you. When I was a young man in my B.C. days before Christ, um, I had a friend named Jerry. I'm fighting a cough, so I'm drinking a lot of water. I don't want to cough, so, so excuse me. Uh, and Jerry and I would like to go to the beach. But before we go to the beach, uh, we would go to McDonald's and steal their uh, trays, right? Because all of you guys who like to surf, you know McDonald's trays make some pretty good bodyboard. You can use it as a handboard to go surfing with. But before we would go to the beach, we'd also go to 7-Eleven and steal food for lunch, right? Get the musubi and then and steal the food, the nachos or whatever. But before that or after that, we'd also go to the ABC stores and steal sunscreen. I don't know why. We never used it. And we would steal beach towels. And then we'd go to the beach and enjoy ourselves. Now, Jerry and I were not broke. We could afford our own food. We could afford our own beach towels. We could afford our own sunscreen. The only thing we couldn't buy was the McDonald's hand trays. Why do we do all that? Because we like to do it. We just like to steal. We took joy in knowing we can do this, it's wrong, and we get away with it, and you can't stop us, right? We did it for the sheer perverse pleasure of just doing something we knew was wrong, right? Now, let me give you a fast forward several years. Now I'm after Christ to show you the principle not, not something as blatant, but I remember Lori and I were going for our, our wedding, and we were visiting um, your reception place, and, you know, they give you the food tastings and all that, and they brought out a wonderful cart of all these wonderful desserts. It was over at Ilfernail, over in uh, Irvine, and there was all these desserts, and a sign that said, do not touch, and I'm thinking, come on, and, and the reason I was thinking this was, you remember there was a trend to make plastic desserts, but they looked absolutely real? You guys remember that, right? And so there was all these eclairs and all these things. And I was like, come on. So I just put my finger right through an eclair, right? Because it was actually real. And that's why the sign said, do not touch. But that's the way I was, right? Now, Lori got really upset. And the lady was appalled because my finger was there in eclair. And so I was like, well, it's a good dessert. Thank you. Um, another illustration. Maybe that one didn't go over so well. <laughs> Wet paint, do not touch. Let's be honest. How many of you are going to touch it? Oh, you all are righteous. <laughs> I guess this is for me. When you see a wet paint sign, who touches it? I do. Some of you, thank you. Thank you, Tim. All right, here's something you can get. Your two-year-old child, three-year-old child, when you tell them, little Johnny, don't do that, what do they then do? They do the exact same thing. 
Okay, that one landed. Okay, you get that. (laughs) Friends, what does that show? That we have a perverse and deep desire to be in charge of our worlds and to be the sovereign over our lives. All of those examples, what they share at their core root is that I get to do what I want to do and no one tells me otherwise. Every law that God lays down is a limitation on our absolute sovereignty. We like to think that we are free, that we go through the world, that we, we are the kings of our own kingdoms until we bump up into a law or a rule and we're reminded we aren't. And we don't like that. Friends, what is the cultural idol of autonomy that we have in our day and age now if not a, an expression of desired sovereignty? So I want bodily autonomy. I want sexual autonomy. I want identity autonomy. I want control over my life and my decisions, and I want to rule my kingdom the way I want. And you know what? Christians are not much different than the world. What do we have? We we may not be crying out for identity autonomy or sexual autonomy, but we cry out what I call faith autonomy. What is that? That it's just me and Jesus and no one else. I don't need the accountability. I don't need to submit to anyone. I don't need a pastor. I don't need elders. I don't need to submit to a church. It's just me and Jesus and that's it. Friends, that's the same idolatrous impulse that's in the world. We just change the window coverings. But it's the same message. You're not the boss of me. That's what it is, isn't it? But doesn't we, don't we look at it in Scripture that God has ordained all kinds of bosses over us. Civil authorities, governments. Social authorities, our families. Spiritual authorities, the church. What? Does church exercise an authority over you? Yes. I, I hope if you're visiting churches and you're visiting here today, I hope that changes the criteria you use to visit a church. Right? It, it better be more now than cool music and good-looking singles. Right? Because if now the church exercises an actual authority over your life, then that should change the whole way you think about church. And by the way, if you think, oh, here's another pastor on a power trip, well-educated, well-taught Christians, who's the church? Is it me? Nope. Is it the elders? Nope. It's the membership. So it's not, this is not a pastor on a power trip. It's just saying God has always ordained bosses over us everywhere, civil, uh, social, as well as spiritual. Friends, in essence, getting back to our text and idea, the force, uh, sin is a force that doesn't want any limitations put on its freedom. And this is as old as Genesis. What was the first temptation to humanity? Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Why? You will be like God. There's no bosses over God. And you get to be just like him. Paul was saying, when the law of God came to me, I realized my heart was full of covetousness. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. In verse 9, look at verse 9. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. Now, that can be a confusing statement. What's going on here? See, here's the thing. Paul was a Jew, and on top of being a Jew, he was a Pharisee. So we know there was not a time in his life that he actually lived apart from the law. So what he must mean here is that his understanding of the law, in the fact that the way he understood it was incorrect, and he was apart from it in that sense. He was apart from the law. In other words, he thought the law was about behavior. 
following certain rules, be nice, check, be polite, check, be moral, check, follow the social norms of your tradition, check, virtue signal all the social norms, correct, that are correct, check, promote all the politically correct hashtags on your Instagram account, check, that there are all these external things. Paul had no idea that the law of God had to do with his deepest affections, his internal loves, that the law has to do with his heart more than the way he was living his life and his behaviors. In fact, if the heart was not correct, the life never would be, which is why, by the way, and when Paul talks about the law, the, the, the technical reference is the Ten Commandments, which is why Commandment 1 and 10 have to do with the affections, and Commandments 9 through 10 all have to do with behavior. It's as if to bookend the importance of the heart, he starts with the affections and ends with the affections, and everything in between is how are you going to live out from those affections. Now, what was the sin, getting back to Paul and, and covetousness, what was the sin that killed him? We see in verses 7 through 11. It was covetousness, which is the 10th commandment. You see, Paul was thinking in verse 9, I did all the behaviors I was supposed to do. I didn't lie. I didn't cheat. I didn't steal. I didn't murder. I didn't commit adultery. I kept the Sabbath. I performed how I was supposed to, to see myself as right or righteous. Paul must have even thought, because I keep commandment one, that I have no other affections for any other gods, I must be okay. Yet he didn't realize that commandment 10 applies this principle to others, and he failed. So when he says, when the command came, what he's referring to is this fundamental understanding that the law is about a changed heart, both towards God and others. And Paul died because he was a failure, because he coveted. He wanted other people's position. He wanted other people's esteem. He wasn't satisfied with what God had given him in his heart. He wanted more. And he realized it has nothing to do with me checking off the behaviors. I failed because in my heart, my, my heart wasn't changed. Here's the question we have to ask. How many people, religious or irreligious, think that they are okay because they are satisfying some self-made standard of their own righteousness, but their heart remains fundamentally unchanged and hardened. Now, you might, might come from more of a traditional conservative perspective, so you're thinking of the Ten Commandments. Maybe you, don't, maybe you come from more of a, a progressive or liberal perspective, and so the Ten Commandments is not for you, but your sense of rightness may be things like environmentalism or climate change or social justice, the DEI, or maybe even a, a LGBTQ plus IA persuasion. And, and you adhere to those principles, and that makes you feel like you're a good person, right? You may not agree with those other views, but this is the commandments that make you feel all right. But if you're going to be really honest, none of us, whether you're conservative and traditional or progressive and liberal, none of us are as consistent to our commands as we'd like to think. Like, so if you are a DEI person, diversity, equity, and inclusion, if you're really going to be diverse, yet you, you have to include all the other people, including those who don't want to be diverse. If you're really going to be inclusive, that means you have to include people who believe in exclusivity. But that's not really what's going on, is it? If you're going to be really honest, 
You want the, de- the people who are diverse, equitable, and inclusive who all are like you. So you fail against that standard. In the LGBTQ plus IA community, if you're going to have that, if you're going to have an L and a G, you need to, excuse me, yeah, L and a G, you need to actually have a working definition of what a man is or a woman if you're going to have an L, a lesbian, and a gay, a male. But the T doesn't agree with that. And so you can't even adhere to what an LGBTQ plus IA agenda is because they don't even agree what an L and a G is in or T, if T should have that opinion. I feel like you're an environmentalist. And you feel like I'm standing up for the environment. I have an EV. No offense to those of you who drive EVs. My point simply is, if you're feeling right because you're helping the environment because you've got a product with less carbon emissions, you can't look at just the final product. You've got to look at the whole product cycle from development, distribution to delivery. And you realize, oh, the carbon emissions, it's really, not, it's really negotiable whether or not you're actually having less of a carbon footprint. And my point is simply this, gang. Whatever laws we try to make ourselves feel right by, we're never consistent. And it's not the salvation we think it is, if we're going to be honest. And Paul had the honesty to say, I fail against this. And so the very law, verse 10, that's supposed to give me life, it just condemned me. And so that leads to, leads to the second question there in verse 13. Does then the law itself cause death? Did that which is good bring death to me? And Paul says again, no. Paul says it was sin. Just as now still, sin still exerts an influence in his life, it discourages him. Now to be clear, Paul is no longer a slave to sin, but that sin still persists in his life. You're a Christian. Can you relate to that? I can. Now, especially in verses 14 and 23, many people have wondered if Paul here is speaking about himself. And while thought or, or not, thoughtful Christians have said, oh, what Paul's talking about here is before he was a Christian, this was a struggle. But I actually think Paul is describing in these 10 verses his existential battle with the Christian faith with his sin. And let me just give you five quick reasons to say that. Notice that in verses 7 through 12, everything Paul writes is in the past tense. But starting in verse 14, it flips, and everything is present tense. And the grammar is, is very, uh, very absolute in that way. So that leads me to believe the most natural reading of this is that Paul is describing his current existential situation. Secondly, as I pointed out, this passage resonates with all of us. If you're a Christian and you're being honest, the struggle with sin is real. Thirdly, although there is a struggle, notice what Paul says, verse 22. In his inmost self, he delights in the law of God. Verse 18, he yearns to obey even though he often finds he can't. This does not describe the unregenerate individual who in chapter 3, Paul says in verse 11, 12, and 18, they don't seek God, they don't want the good, and they don't fear God. And chapter 5, verse 8, they're in fact at war with God. So this doesn't describe the unregenerate person. Fourth, the unregenerate do not see their current situation as a wretched man in need of deliverance. In fact, they rather enjoy their lives, and they're okay living the way they are. They don't cry out as Paul does here in verse 24. And fifth and finally, believing that this is Paul describing his current experience makes most sense of the joy of deliverance that Paul looks forward to in verse 25. <coughs> Excuse me. 
In verse 25, it is a complete joy rather than kind of the now and not yet reality that salvation brings. In other words, Paul is looking forward to that final consummation when sin is done away with and he is set free. He's not looking forward to the inauguration of his faith, but the consummation of it. What Paul is describing to our encouragement is the real struggle Christians will feel against sin. Now remember, at the cross, the taskmaster of sin was in fact defeated. The ultimate penalty had been paid, but it is still present in our lives. It remains a power still, not an absolute power, but a relative power, but a power nonetheless. Two weeks ago, you remember I used the illustration of um, June, uh, the, the D-Day invasion in June of 1944, having broken the back of the Nazi war machine. But there was still a year of fighting, of skirmishes, of battles won and lost until VE Day a year later in May of 1945. At the beginning of chapter 6, Paul is describing decisively D-Day in chapter 7. He's talking about the year that follows. And then chapter 8, VE Day, the final victory. Paul is just aware, friends, that as Christians, we will have conflicting desires. But notice in verse 22, in effect, what he's saying, he says, in my, in my inmost being, in my inner self, my true self, I desire God's will. And he says, so when I disobey, it's not me, rather it is sin in me. See, friends, the Christian faith does not guarantee that everything will be easy all right. In fact, it promises that while one conflict will end, the conflict we had between us and God, which is the ultimate conflict, that only means another conflict begins. When you switch allegiances in a war, that doesn't mean the fighting ends, it just means what you're fighting changes. Instead of fighting God and his purposes and his glory and his holiness, we are now fighting against our sin, our flesh, and the world. You see, before you came to Christ, you were dead to this conflict. You were completely dead. You enjoyed your sins. You indulged your flesh. You were just a part of the world. But now you are at war with those things because you are at peace with God. And if that sounds ironic, it may be because you don't understand the Christian experience as well as you thought you did. Your allegiance has changed. You haven't been taken out of the conflict. It's now who you're fighting is very different. So in verses 7 to 13, back to our text, it's clear that Paul's saying, no one can keep the law of God. And in verse 14 and 23, he makes it very clear, even Christians can't keep the law of God. And so what does the law of God teach us? We need a Savior. We need another way. Because we can't do this. Now, let me say this, because I don't want you to think that, that Paul is some like, hypocrite preacher harboring secret sins, that unfortunately we have too many examples of those, right? Or Paul saying that there's no victory in Christ, because neither of those are true, okay? Paul is fighting valiantly against sin, and there is victory in Christ. But part of the tension we feel here is the perspective from which Paul is writing from. Because now that he's alive to true holiness... He knows there's none in himself. Now that he's aware of what real holiness is from the heart, he realizes, I've got none. In other words, friends, if you all compared 
your Christian lives to me, you'd be all right probably. Like if, if, if I, Pastor Rick Rodiever, was the sum total of the Christian experience, you guys would be doing fine. Maybe not that group there, but most of you would be doing fine, right? But what happens if the point of comparison changes from me to the Lord Jesus Christ? Then how are you doing? And that's exactly what's happening here with Paul. The closer he gets, the closer one gets to holiness, the more you become holy by the work of Christ through his Holy Spirit, the less you will feel holy. It's a great paradox, but it's absolutely true. The more you grow in your Christian faith, the more you're aware of your sin and your need to grow in the Christian faith. And ironically, ironically, the less mature amongst us in our faith think they're better off. That's the irony here. The more mature you are, the more you realize you're not mature. The less mature you are, the more you think you're mature. Right? You guys see what's going on. The more you are conformed to your Savior, the more you recoil over your lack of conformity to the Savior. The more you apprehend, you deeply apprehend the majesty of God, the more you loathe your apathy towards the majesty of God. The more you understand true righteousness, the more you understand true sin. And friends, when you get a taste of that sweetness of the gospel that makes you realize that everything is bitter from the stain of sin, you're actually in a good place. Because then you ask the right question, a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you go to the gospel. Exactly what Paul does here. He says, thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever I look, all I see is my sin. The law condemns me, not because my performance fails, but because my heart is corrupt. I'm doomed. And where will I go? There is nowhere to go. Praise be to God for Jesus Christ. At the end of John's gospel, there's this, there's this wonderful narrative that I think illustrates the depth of what Paul is talking about. If you're familiar with John's gospel, you know the story in John chapter 21. It's this wonderful scene where Jesus restores the apostle Peter after Peter had abandoned him, had, had, had betrayed him, had denied him, and fled from him, fled from Jesus in his greatest moment of need. You can imagine Peter, right? See, here's the thing. We know how the story ends, right? But if you can get into the text... What Peter must have been feeling like, who loved the Lord, right? He would do everything for him, yet when the chips were down, he failed his master. When temptation came, he succumbed. And when the pressure was applied, he buckled. Can any of you relate? Jesus went to his cross alone, abandoned by his friends, his disciples, and his family. And yet, at the end of the Gospel of John, it doesn't end with the triumphant narrative of the resurrection like Matthew and Mark's Gospels do. It actually ends with this really, almost in some sense, anticlimactic, intimate scene on the beach with Jesus and, and Peter. And Peter gets to say the things and do the things 
you better believe he wished he could have done. He was probably beating himself up for on that Saturday, right after that Friday and that Saturday, and had no idea what would come next. And he gets a chance to say those things to the Lord over and over again. It's almost as if you wonder if Paul must have been thinking of his friend Peter in his failure. It's a picture of what Paul's writing here. He's, he, he knows what was right to do, but he doesn't do it. And he's in despair. But he says, who will deliver this wretched man? Thanks be to God. He must be thinking about Peter and Jesus sitting on that beachside. Reconciliation from betrayal. Hope from despair. Healing from trauma. That's what the law is supposed to do for us. Bring us to that point. We recognize, I just, I betray. My life is full of despair. And there's this trauma because I fail and I will constantly do it because I like to do it. I want to do it because I'm a, I've been sold under slavery. But Christ has broken those chains and now there can be reconciliation. Now there can be hope. Now there can be healing. It's only when you realize, though, that you are that wretch can you see the wonderful Savior that he is. Until that happens, friends, Jesus will to you only be a good moral teacher. Until you recognize you are that wretch, he's just going to be a historical figure, maybe a good moral example to follow. In a sense, you're just going to be religious because that's how religious people look at Jesus. But sinners... We know different, don't we? We know. We know who he is. He is a deliverer, a rescuer, the first and ultimate first responder. He is our Lord, our captain, and our king. God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those who cannot help themselves like ourselves. He did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Do you see yourself as that wretch? You have to before you can experience the triumph of the gospel that Paul looks to that we're going to be looking at for the next three weeks in Romans chapter 8. And I hope you come back for that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Would you be so kind, Holy Spirit, to reveal the depth of our sin and neediness that you would expose the crevices of pride and arrogance, the hubris within us. And Lord, would you be so kind that we would be aware of these things, not in other people, but in ourselves, and that we would be broken. And that we, like Paul, would cry out with those two simultaneously, seemingly contradictory, but infused in the gospel, O wretched man that I am! Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Would you give us that gift that we might be the church that this world really needs right now? That we would not be this kind of church for ourselves, that we might grow and enjoy the blessings thereof, but that we might be this kind of church for the world with whom you love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.